Hello, and welcome back for a new episode of the Early Music Podcast, a series produced by Rema and dedicated to the future of the early music sector. My name is Yasmina Czernčić, and this episode was produced in partnership with SAMUS, the Center for Early Music in Cologne, and covers the program of a symposium that was due to happen during the Kölna Festival for Early Music 2020 called Early Music Reload. The end of early music is at the same time, the title of the book published by Bruce Haynes in 2007, the title of the symposium that was conceived as a follow-up on the book's themes, and a deliberately, controversially proposed approach to today's early music practice. In this episode, we gathered a few of the original guests of the symposium, and whom you may still hear on this topic when it can finally take place in 2021. But first, let's welcome Ira Givol, who put this event together and will introduce the topics discussed in the book and the symposium program. My name is Ira Givol, and I am the artistic director of the Cologne Early Music Festival, which is a part of the activities of an organization called ZAMUS, Zentrum für Alte Musik Köln, um, the Cologne Early Music Society or Center. Our festival this year was supposed to take place between the 21st of March to the 29th of March. Unfortunately, due to the, the corona outbreak, we had to cancel everything. And we were fortunate enough to be able to postpone some of the activities to next year's festival, which was very challenging and demanding for me. And for all of us, because we already had a very specific theme for next year, yet we did not want to throw away um, the theme of last year, which was based around Bruce Haynes' book, The End of Early Music. And the symposium under this name will take place in our 2021 festival um, on the 19th of March. Speaking about Bruce Haynes and his book, The End of Early Music, can you tell us what it is about this book that you find is important on a general level, but also what it is that captures you personally to choose it. I know for myself and for many musicians dealing with historical performance or hip, which is, I believe, a term that he actually created, this book was asking the right questions at the right time, putting on the spotlight the very essence of what we do and why we do it and bringing to the front of the stage that maybe the main issue that we don't know everything and we will not know everything so let's stop pretending and start trying to answer the questions one by one um, so on a personal note it kind of addressed exactly all the issues that bothered me with what we do which started to smell like a religion. <laughs> I know I'm not the only one who has that, that belief that, that early music performance, um, to certain people, yeah, it sounds like arbitrary set of rules decided by someone. So yeah, that book came in a very important time in history for me personally, and I believe also for the early music world, for the hip society. Uh, and so I imagine with this in the back of your mind, you began planning the symposium. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about how that was structured and how you, how you imagined how you wished to do bring the conversation forward? Basically, the symposium was built as an integral part of the festival. I tried in each of the concerts of the festival that never took place to address a chapter from the book. 
and a question that arises from the book. And the symposium was the kind of scientific accompaniment of this, I can say, kind of experiment that we were trying to achieve. We were supposed to have uh, Eilam Rotem and uh, Profeti de la Quinta performing Eilam's piece written in 17th century style and Eilam will give a talk in the symposium uh, about what is it to write in historical style in the 21st century. So it was always kind of uh, parallel to things dealt with in the concert in a practical way. So not only on paper but really in practice. I don't think it's, it was necessary. This festival will never take place, unfortunately, but like talking about the, the idea, it was definitely not necessary to read the book in order to understand um, the ideas behind it because we took kind of the, the essence of the idea. Now, obviously, the subject which you chose is a very, very broad subject. And I imagine you and I could speak endlessly and we probably wouldn't come to a conclusion. And yet you had to make a choice based on who to invite to speak in the symposium. How did you finally decide whom to invite? I tried to give place to all the different views. I mean, there is a lot of diversity in the early music field. And I tried to give the stage to as many people possible diverse opinions that could be also uh, saying um, yeah, exactly the opposite. So some people from the founding fathers' generation, I would say maybe Benjamin Bugby and Daniel H. Wilkinson kind of belong to that. People that oppose or let's say don't agree 100% with everything that uh, HIP stands for, like Daniel H. Wilkinson. I try to bring the younger generation, uh, people like uh, Lola, that is actually following a very traditional path. So I think the choices are, are showing kind of the diversity and uh, the very colorful picture of uh, different sort of people that we have in the field. We couldn't really say that it's enough anymore nowadays to simply be a musician. You have to have an opinion, you have to talk about it, you have to somehow show, on, on the one hand through music making, but on the other hand also I imagine through writing. So in a way also the, the idea of who a musician is, is evolving. It's not just this one-dimensional player anymore, it's... I really hope you are right. <laughs> it was a question, but I took it as a statement, and definitely this whole idea of a musician specializing on a very, very little niche thing, I find it bizarre and definitely not historically correct when we think about all the Renaissance men that, that did everything of everything. Uh, what Bach did mostly was probably teaching <laughs> astronomy and Latin, which is not the most exciting thing in the world. So they all did many things. And yeah, definitely I would have not heard of some of the people that I invited unless they would make noise in other fields or ask the right questions, let's say. Since it is such a broad subject, and since the book itself has been around for 13 years, and at the beginning it didn't really have this boom effect, we could say that it's more like creeping into our awareness. So I imagine this is not really something that can be called a one-time thing. I imagine you want to keep pushing and you want to keep digging 
in the next year to keep this discussion going. Eh? Yeah, I, I did hope for some contradicting ideas to be put one juxtaposing one against the other and to maybe find through the concerts, I mean, through the concerts in the festival, validation to, to some of the ideas that we would have tried. I mean, that was my utmost hope that would come out of it. Yeah, that we listen carefully with our ears and less with what we think we know about things. I hope to make kind of a complete thing between the concerts and the symposium and the discussion that will come, that will arise out of it that shows that it goes hand-in-hand, hand, musicology and practical concert life. Now, the early music movement is currently certainly positioned in the drought. So most often when we talk about an evolution regarding music, we principally think of the actual music, of the repertoires, of what the audience ultimately either hears in a recording or on stage in a live performance. And yet there are mechanisms running behind the scenes, which influence the behavior on stage, so to speak. Um, how can festival concert organizers, institutions, artistic directors, yourself, uh, help the evolution of early music performance practice? Is it setting the stage? Is it What forms of impact can you have? Absolutely, because for me, the main issue is not historical performance. Yes, no, can we play with this instrument, that instrument? It's, it's concerts themselves and the format of concerts themselves. Whatever concert, I mean, with whatever instruments, it's a problematic concept and format that needs to be thought of. And that's another very important part of the book. Thank you, Ira Givol, for this introduction. We now welcome three of the original guests of the symposium to discuss the presentation they had planned to give and their thoughts on the evolution of early music practices as described in Bruce Haynes' book. One guest speaker for the symposium was and remains Benjamin Bagby, who is well known for his work with his ensemble Sequencia and for his unique performances of the epic poem Beowulf. Benjamin, welcome. Your presentation in Samos was expected to be about our relation to the roots of early music in the case of medieval music. So my first question is, why do you think that we search for the roots of our culture, of the music? This idea of the roots has its origin in a music festival in Poland, which is called, uh, in English, Song of Our Roots. And it's an early music festival. And I was stimulated by this idea, thanks to this festival, which had invited my ensemble to perform, uh, which got me thinking about uh, the idea of musical roots, why we would even be interested in searching for those roots, how we would know where to look for them, what we would expect to find. And as you say, why do we search for roots? That brings us to the idea of why we make music at all and why music that we perform is not always our new music, the music we have just created. Why are we not constantly writing songs and performing our creations, throwing them away and, and writing new songs the next day and constantly going from one new event to the next? What is it that makes us want to play or sing music from our ancestors or music from our imagined ancestors or even music from last year or five years or a hundred years ago?
And I think that the answer is in something to do with feeling connected. And when the image of roots comes up, we also remember that roots are connected with usually something which grows above the ground. In the case of a tree, for instance, something very powerful. In the musical world, that is our desire to be connected to something larger than us, something mysterious, which maybe we don't even understand, which has its roots in an invisible, deep earth, which we imagine. And I think that's where early music comes in, because early music is all about imagination. Even though we say that early music is based on treatises, is based on manuscripts, is based on written documents uh, which describe music making, we cannot listen to anybody from that time performing any. Thing. And so we literally have only the things we can read, the pictures we can look at, the instruments we can examine, and our own musical imaginations, which are formed by the way we were trained, the expectations we have, uh, the feelings that music create in us, the desires we have to hear a certain kind of sound, and the idea that this must be something authentically coming from my tradition. The thing that I am now doing with this manuscript or with this print, this sonata or this Gregorian chant or whatever, that this must be something in an unbroken tradition. The roots are the invisible thing below the earth where we cannot see it, but we know it's there. And I think that that's an imaginative work that all musicians are engaged in. And the question is how much we're going to admit that we do it, because we're all doing it. The presentation you planned for the Zamo Symposium is very close to an article you published on the website of Sequencia called Reflections on the Image of Musical Roots, in which you use an acronym HIIP, Historically Inspired Imaginative Performance. How can it become a proactive sounding term, implying a more creative approach to historically informed performance practice without losing credibility? We're trying to find information, things that we know about, things that we're sure about, actual pitches, the way actual pitches belong together, the way they're articulated, um, the way they might be interpreted by the human voice or by an instrument, the way that instrument might be tuned. This is all in the realm of things that can be measured. And in many cases in historical music, it is given to us in some detail and or in less detail. In the Middle Ages, we don't have anywhere near the quantity of data that we would need. The term make-believe, which is a, a bit pejorative, of course, is just indulging our childish uh, need for some kind of imagined past. And so we just make up something uh, because we like it. It exists also in romantic music. It exists even in some early 20th century music. It, it exists in every attempt to reconstruct something that, for which we have no sounding documents.
the early music idea, as it began 80 or 70 years ago, was one of searching for information. And the words that were used were often things relating to purity, to things being cleaned, to uh, removing the, the varnish from an old painting so that its colors may once again be vibrant. That search for purity, for going back to the basic thing, is in a way just as pejorative as make-believe. So you have purity on one hand and make-believe on the other hand. They're both pejorative, and somewhere between those two, there is a zone where the imagination functions, but also the ability to, to process data from the past and to understand visual and printed and manuscript uh, annotations um, to make some sense out of a performance. Because in the end, we have to stand up in front of other people and make music. I think what the death of early music really is much more involved with is this search for purity because the search for purity will never achieve its goal. There is no way to find purity, and indeed search for purity is, or an expectation of purity, is in a way a kind of a fanatical belief that it can be achieved. Um, and I think the death of early music is to some extent linked with this idea that purity can be achieved or that we should spend all of our energy searching for it. I think the life which we need to function as musicians uh, comes from an, a recognition of what can be accomplished with purity, but also a recognition that we can never achieve it, but we can achieve imagination. And this imagination can be, indeed, informed. And I think that that's, uh, if you add to that inspiration and information and imagination, without searching for purity, I think that that will be a life-giving element um, that might give a new life to the idea of early music. The time machine paradox is a term I have come across in a few of your writings. You also speak of it in different lectures you give. How is it relevant for early music performers? What is the way out? Do we need to, quote-unquote, kill early music in order to receive a new one? Well, that's a big question. First of all, I don't think we can kill any music. Um, all music types that are being performed today will survive in one way or another. They, they won't be killed, but they'll evolve into perhaps something that, which would surprise us. It is a time machine paradox that we have our tastes and our own, the things we like to hear, the things we like to hear ourselves do. And if we had a chance to listen to a medieval performer or indeed a Baroque performer or Renaissance performer, knowing full well this is the person who made that music back then, and we simply listened to it and thought, you know, I really don't like the way this man sings. I really don't like the way they play. Uh, I find it insensitive or I find it uh, unmusical, according to the way I think about music. Um, at that moment, we have to admit that the music is not about a historical document. The music is about us, our tastes, 
we say historical imagination, um, it shows that our historical imagination is powerful and something has formed it, something has made it evolve in that way. Having that image in the mind of listening to the actual time machine musician from whatever period and finding fault with it shows that we would, would also find fault with ourselves if we came into our own time from a, from a time in the future. We would also criticize, be not inspired by, be disappointed by the way we make music. Partially, the proactive future will come to us if we can live with that realization, that the way we're performing today, if we came back from 300 years in the future, we would look at it and say, um, I would do it differently now. Just as we can't search for purity and expect to find it, I don't think we can assume that the things we perform today as early music would necessarily be seen that way in the future. The scientific principles of HIPP, Historically Informed Performance Practice, are based on tangible and measurable data we can collect from the past. Connecting to the time machine paradox, the one thing we will never reach, however, is the actual sound of the past. Does sound even matter? And if not, what is, in your opinion, more relevant? The, the actual human being right now in front of us who's performing is the only relevant thing. Um, because in any case, the people in the past who made this music and who created this music, they're dead. They've been dead a long time. So it's the living who are relevant, and it's the living who will pass on whatever traditions that they perceive they are receiving from the past. And since we cannot access the sound from the past, we can access the sound from our past, the years during which there have been recordings, we tend to base what we're doing on the things we've heard. And the things we've heard are from a very limited time, and they're all historically informed, but also imaginatively informed. Since the early music movement has been evolving more or less for the past 80 years, we can today speak of the third, perhaps even the fourth generation of early music performers entering the scene. So the early music movement has been around for long enough to generate a living tradition of early music performance. What are, in your opinion, the dangers or the advantages of such a living tradition of HIPP? Well, the advantages are that it's always great to have a living model to listen to, to learn from, to imitate. We have that possibility now with living masters who've been around, some of them for 40 years, some of them even for 50 years, and that gives us a very reassuring feeling that we're connected to the deeper past. So again, talking about roots, uh, if we have an old, old teacher who says this is the way it must be, and we, uh, we feel not only connected to that old teacher, but we feel connected to um, the past very far beyond that teacher. It, it's an imaginative process. Uh, because he's old or she's old, it must be an old tradition. So that's one of the dangers. We have a comforting feeling of being connected to the past when actually we're, we're only connected to one past. It gives us a feeling of belonging. And I think just as with the roots idea, this idea of studying with teachers is very often about being part of something. The general theme of the symposium 
was the death of early music. Is there something like the death of medieval music? And if so, what will be reborn out of the burnt phoenix's ashes? As an idea, it's very stimulating to, th to think about the end or death because then you imagine what will come after it, but you also imagine what might cause it. So we've thought a lot about what could cause the, the end of early music. There's been really a change of attitude in the performance of medieval music that uh, newer generations are less and less terrified of the material they're performing. But many young musicians today are no longer... Uh, in that mindset, they're playing music because it's their music. And I think that's a good thing. And if that's the phoenix which is going to rise from the ashes of of the demise or the death or the end of early music, then I think it's a, it's a good thing. Our next guest is Peter van Hagen, who is teaching historical performance practice at the early music departments of the Royal Conservatories in Brussels and The Hague. Also a recorder player and singer, Peter started his career in research, then went to teaching historically informed practice, which led him to becoming a conductor. So his take on the subject of working with primary sources is at the same time the point of view of a researcher and a performer. Peter, thank you very much for joining us today. What can you tell us you have learned about historically informed performance from primary musical sources, which drastically changed your view of this music? Now, there is, of course, many, many possible answers to that question. I could answer more philosophically or more on aesthetics or music aesthetics in a general way, answering you, for example, that to study the way music was performed in the past or could have been performed in the past, we always, always have to be cautious. Inevitably, we're always looking with our own glasses on, spectacles on to, to the sources. So there, there is already, and we never know actually, even when we read it. But I mean, with the available information, it is very clear that music was performed in quite different ways that, that we would normally do it now, or in, it, in that it was performed about 100 years ago. So in a very, very general way, I would say that uh, given the fact that music was performed already in so many different ways, in historical periods really gives you different vantage points and enrich your own possibility of choice. That would be the, the very basic question and this is probably also, and that's why probably I'm going to change the theme of my uh, paper, of my lecture, um, into something much more general uh, focused on that. In a more tangible, in a more practical way, um, it is a fact that using old sources and, and trying to do that in the way that it could have been done um, drastically sometimes changes um, the sound of what you're doing. For example, if you're performing, as I have done as a singer many times, if you perform um, 16th century or early, late 15th, early 16th century music from a choir book notation in front of you, the, the whole ensemble is positioned in a different way. Uh, you're much closer together, for example, so you're clustered much more. The interference of sound between the singers, uh, the physical contact there is between the performers, and also the way these sounds combine towards the audience, um, even the visual aspect of seeing a group of singers clustered around a lectern, a central lectern, is a completely different acoustical and visual experience for the audience. So this is, an, I think, an extreme, from, from my part, perhaps the most extreme 
example where I experienced the, the use of old sources and, and old manuscripts, old editions, how this drastically can change your, your way of performing music. On a more nuanced level, I would say the fact that you do not have text underlay, the fact that you don't have any bar numbers, it really makes you sing in quite a different way and makes you focus on other things. It, it opens up your ears. You have to rely much more on um, auditory signals from your um, fellow musicians than on visual. I'm not saying that this is the true way of doing it because I am absolutely not a fetishist of original notation. Uh, it's a means to an end. But it really broadens your your range of, of expressive possibilities and artistic and musical imagination. How are now modern editions often providing misleading information? The fact that, for example, as a singer or a player, for that matter, you have an entire phrase in one uh, glance of an eye in front of you enables you to sing longer stretches without breathing. You start here in the line and you see the end of that line 10-15 centimeters further to the right um, whereas you might have to turn twice your page using a modern edition it makes for a difficult physical feeling even just physically a second thing is definitely what I have remarked for myself when you're singing one to a part your clues come from looking at the score so on what note do I have to start my next phrase after all these bars of rests by not having these visual clues you are much more focused on an acoustical cue. That means that you feel the moment coming where your voice needs to enter again. And this really leads to a much more organic way of singing. Now, once you have experienced that, I am absolutely sure that you can transpose that or can you use that when you're using modern scores. Again, I am not a fetishist of old notation because it has many disadvantages, but it, it, it really widens your horizons. So let's talk about the disadvantages of old uh, ways of notating music. First of all, there are many, many, many questions. Are we completely sure that these very objects that we still have were the ones that are used? One very obvious problem is the fact that I have never, ever encountered, for example, even 17th and 18th century part books that, were, that are preserved at a library that used to be part of a court. To all probability, these were the parts that were available to that court for that piece of music, that none of them show any remarks by players, uh, any indications, any phrasings, any reminders, even sometimes not even corrections of plain mistakes. The fact that choir books, for example, do not have uh, markings, five fingers of turning the pages, it makes you wonder, are these really the, the scores and the, or the books or the parts that were used for the performers or by some miracle or by some, I don't know, uh, something that we haven't discovered yet are all the ones that were actually used, are, the, are those lost? Or did musicians have another mentality towards and, and, and all that? So that's the first reason not to, I think, um, make the value uh, of these of these sources very absolute. A second thing is that, indeed, there are sometimes many mistakes in old edition. A third thing is definitely that, for, for example, for rehearsing or for recording an, a, a CD, there are no bar numbers. So for restarting a fragment, for example, you cannot just say, let's start at bar 10. Uh, the, the explanation where to start again is much more complicated. You lose a lot of time. 
Um, and a modern score has all the advantages over that. You see the entire composition in one glance. You see the how uh, voices work out. When, for example, a recording engineer uh, hears, and this sometimes happens, acoustic does strange things with ears sometimes. Uh, it's out of tune there. But he cannot really point to which voice exactly is out of tune uh, where. With the score, it's much easier to do so. Uh, so there are huge advantages of modern scores over um, the, uh, the old parts as well. What I experience myself is that every performance, every version, even if you make a recording, is a snapshot of what you think would be the best way to do the work. A point of discussion is you have an aria end of the 17th century in an oratoria, it's followed by a ritornello. Should the ritornello start on the last note of the aria, or should it, as it is written, after the turn of a page, should it start only after your cadence and repeat that note? It is obvious that when you make, for example, an, a work edition for your session, that you have already made that choice. And yet these choices um, have a lot to do, as you say, with some other, with, with a different pillar that, that you find so important, and that is research, obviously. How do you approach this kind of wholesome study and looking at primary materials with your students so that at the same time they don't just get fixated on modern editions and on the other hand to show them that there are still problems with original scores and how to somehow combine them. It's a very um, difficult and elaborate thing to do because um, you have to tell your students is that there is no truth out, out there, that nothing is, uh, can be trusted, that there is no authority except for what I just said. On one hand you have to offer um, your students basic knowledge, basic insights that are only to a specific extent true and trustworthy and at the same time as soon as you can and as soon as you trust to do it and that sometimes that's different for, for from student to student to undermine almost everything you say the aim of of of, of my teaching is definitely to give them um, or to install a concept of a sort of bipolar system that means for everything you say you can say yes but Mm. Um, and uh, if you establish these poles firmly enough, it's in between that they have to um, search for their own solution or solutions depending on the situation and the phases in their lives. And at the same time, you have to install a confidence that it, that this is possible. Um, what I mostly also do is start um, with the reassurance that there is nothing out there that is out of their hands to know. most important part of my teaching is how do I gather information? How do I work with that information is another bit of the task, but there is absolutely a way of knowing whether information is available or not, and whether that information is complete or not. How misleading modern scores can still be in the sense of you're already starting with a, with a secondary source, literally, it is through the eyes of somebody and the authority of that person 
by the way, that's just the same as the authority of a teacher at the school, eh? uh, makes you believe that this edition is the true version of a work. First of all, you could have lengthy discussions about what a work really is. Uh, secondly, an, an, an Urtext edition, although the term in, inspires confidence, is actually in a clever way combining different sources, shaking very well, and then even in many cases, this is what students will still use. A score has very much to do with how you psychologically behave on the stage, ultimately. What is your solution for this problem? How do you as a performer and as a conductor create scores, let's say modern editions, but which are much more usable and actually much more helpful for the overall experience to get this, you know, the right feeling that you don't get anxious when you have to turn the page twice for the breathing and so on. Um, what What is your purely technical approach for creating modern editions. But what I mostly do is um, opt for my solution and tell everybody that this is my choice. Uh, and in order to do that, I need to go to the primary sources. And then I, I have no qualms, I have no hesitations to make a performance score with ornaments written in or suggested or uh, all the elements that are present in editions we were taught not to appreciate anymore. And this sometimes leads to problems because whether you want it or not, whether you have said it a thousand times or not, if you're not careful, your scores are traveling on the internet and everybody takes that for the real edition of that work. But I would encourage, and I do so in my lessons also, every musician to make your own editions. It's much cheaper and at least you're playing your own mistakes and not somebody else's mistakes. I have more contact, I have more impact on mainstream musicians nowadays than on early music musicians. Because many early music musicians now have not come to the early music world because they like this philosophical or this attitude, but just because they fell in love with the sound of the specific instrument. And our last guest today is the British musicologist Daniel Leach Wilkinson, Professor Emeritus at King's College London. Nowadays, his research is focused on how the creativity of early music performers is restrained by the expectations of historically informed performance practice. Well, my, my talk was going to be called Liberating Classical Music Performance. And, um, of course, people don't normally think that classical music performers need liberating from anything because they imagine that, that performing classical music is a kind of a blissful existence in which you do what you love in a sort of state of artistic ecstasy. Of course, the reality for performers is very different. In fact, your, your choices are much more limited. You're, you're trained to perform these scores in particular ways. Or in the case of early music people, you're trained to play or sing with particular kinds of style, using particular kinds of techniques. And whether you get work depends entirely, or very largely, on how faithfully and persuasively you apply those techniques, those styles, and how faithfully and persuasively you play those scores the way that people expect them to be played. And so, so actually people's, people's 
mental health, their sense of that they are getting, that they're doing something worthwhile and that they're, they're getting spiritual rewards from it. And also their very employment depend on how faithfully and persuasively they follow the rules. And that's really rather sad, I think. I mean, that's not a healthy situation. It's true that people make fantastic music within this system, but the system itself is, is not a benign one. You know, it's, it puts enormous pressure on artists to behave normatively, and it gives them very little space to be individual. We tell one another that we're all able to be very different um, and that we all have our own artistic personalities. But actually, if you do anything in an unusual way, it's very likely that somebody will tell you to stop. Either um, a conductor or somebody you're performing with or, um, most commonly and viciously, a critic afterwards. I've been asking myself why classical music has to operate as a kind of... I mean, police state sounds rather harsh, but actually it's not so far away from that, in the sense that one's behaviour is constrained and constantly monitored. And one doesn't really have the kind of freedom that an artist would normally expect to have in making art. So there's always this question about whether classical music is an artistic practice at all when it comes to performance. And I can't see any reason why it shouldn't be. And I think that performers would be a lot happier if they had more freedom to find their own ways of working with scores and also to be able to interact imaginatively and creatively with other musicians to a greater extent than they are. I think, I mean, in some ways early music is not such a big... It is a problem, but it's not such a big problem as um, mainstream classical music, simply because early music has managed to use the lack of knowledge about the past in order to develop quite a varied range of ways of playing scores. We do hear, I think, more difference among early music performers, ironically, considering that the whole point of the early music movement was to get back to the composer and what the composer wanted. But I think we, we do hear more difference among early music performers than we do among mainstream repertoire performers, but not nearly as much as we could hear. Uh, what I want to do is remove the expectations and the constraints and allow performers more personal, individual freedom and collective freedom as a group uh, in the way that they work with scores.
the way that people react to a classical music performance depends not only on what they hear, but on what they believe about what they hear. And it's those beliefs that are the problem. Those beliefs are preventing musicians from finding a lot of different ways of making scores work. And so the question, do I like this, becomes inseparable from the question, is this correct? And the same performance can be thought absolutely wonderful by one listener and absolutely appalling by another listener simply because they know different things about the score that's being played. Um, I've got a wonderful example of Patrizia Kopachinskaya, the violinist, playing a cadenza for the Beethoven concerto. Her performance uses the timpani and a duet with the concertmaster and four of the cellists all taking part in this cadenza. And some listeners thought that this was a wonderful thing and extremely fresh and inventive. And some listeners thought that it was disgraceful and not Beethoven and um, that she shouldn't be allowed to play like this. Well, the people who liked it knew that she'd been using Beethoven's own cadenza, which he wrote for the piano concerto version of the violin concerto. And the people who didn't like it didn't know that she was using Beethoven's cadenza. But the sounds were exactly the same. Now, I thought the point of music was to be thrilled and excited and moved by sound. But it seems that a lot of the time, the point of music is just to do what is right. And performers have understood the difficult position they're in. I recently had a conversation with a group of university students and they were asking some very profound questions which could be summed up by, am I an artist? Am I even allowed to call myself that? But that is how you feel by the time you get to 18 and you've had, what I don't know, 14 years, 13, 14 years of training and learning to do the correct thing in order to get to the conservatoire, you're bound to think that. Now, for your research, which is now also freely available in the form of the online book called Challenging Performance, Classical Music Performance Norms and How to Escape Them, you chose to focus on very particular pieces of music. Can you tell us more about them? So why Beethoven and why Purcell in, in this case? Actually, there's a, there's a whole website there, and the book is just part of that website. And the website includes a, quite a wide range of alternative or, or transgressive performances of well-known scores. So there's, there are, there's a set of Schubert songs, for example, um, lots of performances of Debussy, Brahms, Beethoven, Bartok, Telemann, um, Bach, even Webern is there. <laughs> um, but I suppose it's true that the two biggest pieces that we've done so far are the Beethoven Moonlight Sonata and the Purcell Dido and Aeneas score. And they were both kind of irresistible, you know, because they're they're such sacred scores. Everybody knows them. Everybody knows how they're supposed to go. And they always go in more or less the same way. You know what you're going to get if you go to a performance of the Moonlight Sonata or Dido and Aeneas. 
the point of my project is to show how much wider the space is that contains all possible performances. How much wider that space is than we think it is. And so what I want to find out when I look at a score is what else these notes can do. But early music in itself is all about deconstructing preconceived ideas and looking at the sources with a critical eye and also looking at the tradition of performance with a critical eye. So surely we are aware when we look at such masterpieces that the way they are played has to be put into perspective? There's already been such wide variation in the way that they've been played if you look over a long enough period of time, if you go back to the earliest recordings, which is, you know, now well over a hundred years, then you hear people making music in ways that are completely unrecognisable to us. Ways we wouldn't even think are musical. <laughs> These pieces sound quite different a hundred years ago. So how much more different 500 years ago? But the point is that early recordings show that it is possible to make these scores work, to make them moving and beautiful and engaging and thrilling in a much wider variety of ways than we think are possible at the moment. I think that you know there are good reasons to try and find out how big this space is, this interpretative space, and to, to, to go and push at the boundaries and see if we can get beyond them. If we move on to the second one, which is Dido and Aeneas reimagined as Dido and Belinda. Hearing that closing scene, it has a modern touch, but that modern touch is so subtle that you almost don't notice it. In a way, it doesn't really interfere with what is written in the score, but somehow it does. How, how did you find this balance? The one place in classical music where there is real innovation and creativity is in opera production. But of course what happens in opera is that they bring in a director from theatre and the director creates a production which may well bring in modern themes and refers to, to, to uh, topics of, of current concern. And at the same time, the musicians continue to perform the score in the way they always perform it. And nobody, as far as I know, has yet asked what would happen if one applied to the music making the same principles one applies to the stage direction. And why shouldn't we? You know, if it's, if it's okay in Shakespeare, why is it not okay in Purcell? So what we wanted to find out with Dido and Belinda was what would happen if we allowed the musicians to reinterpret the score in the same way that the director was reinterpreting the libretto. So that we have a, a stage production and a musical production that are working in parallel. They're telling the same story. I mean, actually, my first idea was about... Dido's Lament, because I think if you can get that to work, then you've got a key to the whole production. I wondered what Dido's Lament would be like as a love duet, and I was thinking of the final duet of Monteverdi's Popea. And so we workshopped that, first of all, to find out how it would be if Dido and Belinda sang that duet together. 
the reason we chose Dido and Belinda was that if you if you look at at Dido and Aeneas, Dido and Belinda have a much closer relationship than Dido and Aeneas, and they're much more plausible lovers, in fact, than Dido and Aeneas are. Dido and Aeneas have really nothing in common at all, and Aeneas is awful. You know, all he wants to do is to go hunting. <laughs> He's a complete airhead. Belinda, uh, Belinda's a much more sympathetic character, much better matched with Dido. And, of course, they have the most loving music together in the score. So it's very easy to reread the score um, as a love relationship between Dido and Belinda. So when we get to this final duet... It's really a question of, of what's going on. They're, they're, they're improvising the suicide note together. They're, they're exchanging ideas about what the text might be. And they gradually construct it during the recitative and the aria. And what happens when you do that is that you get this wonderful intermixing of the intensity and the pathos and the beauty of that score for the lament with the irony and the comedy in a quiet way, the quiet comedy of using this intense language and yet the comedy doesn't destroy the beauty. The point of providing a website and a free online resource and a book online which anybody can read is to try and get this idea circulating among young professional performers and conservatoire students because I see them as the people in the best position to transform the way we think about classical music over the next few decades. You know, they have the technique to play these scores quite differently. And they have the incentive to, to make uh, a career in which they are individuals and they have something special to say themselves. So really what I'm trying to do is to reach a new generation of musicians rather than directly to reach the public. Yes, training the performers to embrace new practices and broaden the scope of their skills is the centre of experimenting in new concert forms. Thank you, Daniel, for this chat, and thank you, listeners, for following this episode of Our Future Past. The Paradoxes of Early Music is an artistic performance area that deeply relies on historical and scientific accuracy, are an endless topic of discussion that is regularly tackled in various symposiums, conferences, but also has repercussions on the stage or in recordings. And this critical mindset is actually what is keeping the early music practices alive, so we are hoping to see more of this during the upcoming Early Music Summit organized by REMA. This podcast series is a preparation for this conference that will take place in Bozar in November 2020 in partnership with the AEC. It will assess the state of early music today and take a critical look at its practices and evolution. So stay tuned for more. <laughs>